Part Two of Let Him Breathe Space by Lester Del Rey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Let Him Breathe Space by Lester Del Rey. Chapter Four. I don't know how many were shocked at Hal's death, or how many looked around and counted one less pair of lungs. He'd never been one of the men I'd envied the air he used, though, and I think most felt the same. For a while we didn't even notice that the air was even thicker. Phil Riggs broke the silence following our inspection of Lomax's cabin. That damned bullard, I'll get him, I'll get him as sure as he got Hal. There was a rustle among the others, and a suddenly crystallized hate on their faces. But Muller's hoarse shout cut through the babble that began, and rose over even the anguished shrieking of the cook. Shut up, the lot of you! Bullard couldn't have committed the other crimes. Any one of you is a better suspect. Stop sniveling, Bullard. This isn't a lynching mob, and it isn't going to be one. What about Grundy? Walt Harris yelled. Wilcox pushed forward. Grundy couldn't have done it. He's the logical suspect, but he was playing rummy with my men. The two engine men nodded agreement, and we began filing back to the mess hall, with the exception of Bullard, who shoved back into a niche trying to avoid us. Then, when we were almost out of sight, he let out a shriek and came blubbering after us. I watched them put Hal Lomax's body through the tween-holes lock and turn toward the engine room. I could use some of that wine, just as the ship could have used a trained detective, but the idea of watching helplessly while the engines purred along to remind me I was just a handyman for the rest of my life got mixed up with the difficulty of breathing the stale air, and I started to turn back. My head was throbbing, and for two cents I'd have gone out between the hulls beside Lomax and the others and let the foul air spread out there and freeze. The idea was slowly coming. Then I was running back toward the engines. I caught up with Wilcox just before he went into his own quarters. Wilcox! He swung around casually, saw it was me, and motioned inside. How about some Bartok, Paul? Or would you rather soothe your nerves with some first-rate Buxtahuda organ? Damn the music, I told him. I've got a wild idea to get rid of this carbon dioxide, and I want to know if we can get it working with what we've got. He snapped to attention at that. Halfway through my account, he fished around and found a bottle of Armanac. I get it. If we pipe our air through the passages between the hulls on the shadow side, it will lose its heat in a hurry, and we can regulate its final temperature by how fast we pipe it through. Just keep it moving enough to reach the level where carbon dioxide freezes out, but the oxygen stays a gas. Then pass it around the engines. We'll have to cut out the normal cooling setup, but that's okay. Warm it up. Sure. I've got equipment enough for that. We can set it up in a day. Of course it won't give us any more oxygen, but we'll be able to breathe what we have. To success, Paul. I guess it was good brandy, but I swallowed mine while calling Muller down and never got to taste it. It's surprising how much easier the air got to breathe after we double-checked the idea. In about fifteen minutes we were all milling around in the engine room while Wilcox checked through the equipment. But there was no question about it. It was even easier than we'd thought. 
We could simply bypass the cooling unit, letting the engine housing stay open to the between-hulls section. Then it was simply a matter of cutting a small opening into that section at the other end of the ship and installing a sliding section to regulate the amount of air flowing in. The exhaust from the engine heat pumps was reversed and run out through a hole hastily knocked in the side of the wall. Naturally, we let it flow too fast at first. Space is a vacuum, which means it's a good insulator. We had to cut the air down to a trickle. Then Wilcox ran into trouble because his engines wouldn't cool with that amount of air. He went back to supervise a patched-up job of splitting the coolers into sections, which took time, but after that we had it. I went through the hatch with Muller and Pietro. With air there, there was no need to wear spacesuits, but it was so cold that we could take it for only a minute or so. That was long enough to see a faint, fine mist of dry ice snow falling. It was also long enough to catch a sight of the three bodies there. I didn't enjoy that, and Pietro gasped. Muller grimaced. When we came back, he sent Grundy in to move the bodies to a hull section where our breathing air wouldn't pass over them. It wasn't necessary, of course, but somehow it seemed important. By lunch, the air seemed normal. We shipped only pure oxygen at about three pounds pressure instead of loading it with a lot of useless nitrogen. With the carbon dioxide cut back to normal levels, it was as good as ever. The only difference was that the fans had to be set to blow in a different pattern. We celebrated, and even Bullard seemed to have perked up. He dug out pork chops and almost succeeded in making us cornbread out of some coarse flour I saw him pouring out of the food chopper. He had perked up enough to bewail the fact that all he had was canned spinach instead of turnip greens. But by night the temper had changed, and the food indicated it again. Bullard's cooking was turning into a barometer of the psychic pressure. We'd had time to realize that we weren't getting something for nothing. Every molecule of carbon dioxide that crystallized out took two atoms of oxygen with it, completely out of circulation. We were also losing water vapor, we found. Normally, any one of our group knew enough science to know that the water would fall out before the carbon dioxide, but we hadn't thought of it. We took care of that, however, by having Wilcox weld in a baffle and keep the section where the water condensed separate from the carbon dioxide snowfall. We could always shovel out the real ice, and meantime the ship's controls restored the moisture to the air easily enough. But there was nothing we could do about the oxygen. When that was gone, it stayed gone. The plants still took care of about two-thirds of our waste, but the other third was locked out there between the hulls. Given plants enough, we could have thawed it and let them reconvert it. A nice idea, except that we had to wait three months to take care of it, if we lived that long. Bullard's cooking began to get worse. Then suddenly we got one good meal. Eve Nolan came down the passage to announce that Bullard was making cake with frosting, canned huckleberry pie, and all the works. We headed for the mess hall fast. It was the cook's masterpiece. Muller came down late, though, and regarded it doubtfully. There's something funny, he said as he settled down beside me. Jenny had been surrounded by Napier and Pietro. Bullard came up babbling a few minutes ago. I, I don't like it. Something about eating hearty, because he'd saved us all, forever and ever. He told me the angels were on our side, because a beautiful angel with two halos came to him in his sleep and told him how to save us. I chased him back to the galley, but I don't like it. 
Most of them had already eaten at least half of the food, but I saw Muller wasn't touching his. The rest stopped now, as the words sank in, and Napier looked shocked. No, he said, but his tone wasn't positive. He's a weakling, but I don't think he's insane. Not enough to poison us. There was that food poisoning before, Pietro said suddenly. Paul, come along, and don't eat anything until we come back. We broke the record getting to the galley. There Bullard sat, beaming happily, eating from a huge plate piled with the food he had cooked. I checked on it quickly, and there wasn't anything he'd left out. He looked up, and his grin widened foolishly. Hi, Docs, he said. Yes, sir. I knowed you'd be coming. It all came to me in a dream. Looked just like my wife twenty years ago she did, with green and yellow halos. And she told it to me told me I'd been a good man and nothing was going to happen to me, not to good old Emery Bullard. Had it all figured out. He speared a big forkful of food and crammed it into his mouth, munching noisily. Had it all figured. Popcorn. Best damn popcorn you ever saw. Kind they raised not fifty miles from where I was born. You know, I didn't used to like you guys, but now I love everybody. When we get to Saturn, I'm going to make up for all the times I didn't give you popcorn. We'll pop and we'll pop. And beans, too. I used to hate beans. Always beans on a ship. But now we're saved. And I love beans. He stared after us, half coming out of his seat. Hey, Docs, ain't you going to let me tell you about it? Later, Bullard. Pietro called back. Something just came up. We want to hear all about it. Inside the mess hall, he shrugged. He's eating the food himself. If he's crazy, he's in a happy stage of it. I'm sure he isn't trying to poison us. He sat down and began eating without any hesitation. I didn't feel as sure, and suspected he didn't. But it was too late to back out. Together we summarized what he'd told us, while Napier puzzled over it. Finally the doctor shrugged. Visions, euphoria, disconnection with reality. Apparently something of a delusion that he's to save the world. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it sounds like insanity to me. Probably not dangerous. At least, while he wants to save us, we won't have to worry about the food. Still... Wilcox mulled it over and resumed the eating he had neglected before. Grundy claimed he'd been down near the engine room trying to get permission to pop something in the big pile. I thought Grundy was just getting his stories mixed up. But popcorn? I'll have him locked in his cabin, Muller decided. He picked up the nearest handset, saw it was to the galley, and switched quickly. Grundy, lock Bullard up. And no rough stuff this time. Then he turned to Napier. Dr. Napier, you'll have to see him and find out what you can. I guess there's a primitive fear of insanity in most of us. We felt sick beyond the nagging worry about the food. Napier got up at once. I'll give him a sedative. Maybe it's just nerves, and he'll snap out of it after a good sleep. Anyhow, your mate can stand watching. Who can cook? Muller asked. His eyes swung down the table toward Jenny. I wondered how she'd get out of that. Apparently she'd never told Muller about the scars she still had from spilled grease, and how she'd never forgiven her mother or been able to go near a kitchen since. But I should have guessed. She could remember my stories, too. Her eyes swung up toward mine pleadingly. Eve Nolan stood up suddenly. 
I'm not only a good cook, but I enjoy it," she stated flatly, and there was disgust in the look she threw at Jenny. She swung toward me. How about it, Paul? Can you wrestle the big pots around for me? I used to be a short-order cook when I was in finishing school, I told her, but she'd ruined the line. The grateful look and laugh from Jenny weren't needed now, and curiously I felt grateful to Eve for it. I got up and went after Napier. I found him in Bullard's little cubbyhole of a cabin. He must have chased Grundy off, and now he was just drawing a hypo out of the cook's arm. It'll take the pain away, he was saying softly. And I'll see that he doesn't hit you again. You'll be all right now. And in the morning I'll come back and listen to you. Just go to sleep. Maybe she'll come back and tell you more. He must have heard me since he signaled me out with his hand and backed out quietly himself, still talking. He shut the door and clicked the lock. Bullard heard it, though. He jerked to a sitting position and screamed, No! No! He'll kill me! I'm a good man! He hunched up on the bed, forcing the sheet into his mouth. When he looked up a second later, his face was frozen in fear, but it was a desperate, calm kind of fear. He turned to face us, and his voice raised to a full shout, with every word as clear as he could make it. All right. Now I'll never tell you the secret. Now you can all die without air. I promise I'll never tell you what I know. He fell back, beating at the sheet with his hand and sobbing hysterically. Napier watched him. Poor devil, the doctor said at last. Well, in another minute the shot will take effect. Maybe he's lucky he won't be worrying for a while. And maybe he'll be rational tomorrow. All the same, I'm going to stand guard until Muller gets someone else here, I decided. I kept remembering Lomax. Napier nodded, and half an hour later Bill Sanderson came to take over the watch. Bullard was sleeping soundly. The next day, though, he woke up to start moaning and writhing again. But he was keeping his word. He refused to answer any questions. Napier looked worried as he reported he'd given the cook another shot of sedative. There was nothing else he could do. Cooking was a relief in a way. By the time Eve and I had scrubbed all the pots into what she considered proper order, located some of the food lockers, and prepared and served a couple of meals, we'd evolved a smooth system that settled into a routine with just enough work to help keep our minds off the dwindling air in the tanks. In anything like a kitchen, she lost most of her mannish pose and turned into a live, efficient woman. And she could cook. First thing I learned, she told me. I grew up in a kitchen. I guess I'd never have turned to photography if my kid brother hadn't been using our sink for his darkroom. Wilcox brought her a bottle of his wine to celebrate her first dinner. He seemed to want to stick around, but she chased him off after the first drink. We saved half the bottle to make a sauce the next day. It never got made. Muller called a council of war, and his face was pinched and old. He was leaning on Jenny as Eve and I came into the mess hall. Oddly, she seemed to be trying to buck him up. He got down to the facts as soon as all of us were together. Our oxygen tanks are empty, he announced. They shouldn't be, but they are. Someone must have sabotaged them before the plants were poisoned and done it so the dials don't show it. I just found it out when the automatic switch to a new tank failed to work. We now have the air in the ship and no more. Dr. Napier and I have figured that this will keep us all alive with the help of the plants for no more than fifteen days. 
I am open to suggestions. There was silence after that while it soaked in. Then it was broken by a thin scream from Phil Riggs. He slumped into a seat and buried his head in his hands. Pietro put a hand on the man's thin shoulders. Captain Muller. Kill him! It was Grundy's voice bellowing sharply. Let him breathe space. They got us into it. We can make out what the plants left. It's our ship. Muller had walked forward. Now his fist lashed out and Grundy crumpled. He lay still for a second, then got to his feet unsteadily. Jenny screamed, but Muller moved steadily back to his former place without looking at the mate. Grundy hesitated, fumbled in his pocket for something, and swallowed it. Captain, sir. His voice was lower this time. Yes, Mr. Grundy. How many of us can live off the plants? Ten, perhaps eleven. Then, then give us a lottery. Pietro managed to break in over the yells of the rest of the crew. I was about to suggest calling for volunteers, Captain Muller. I still have enough faith in humanity to believe— You're a fool, Dr. Pietro, Muller said flatly. Do you think Grundy would volunteer? Or Bullard? But thanks for clearing the air and admitting your group has nothing more to offer. A lottery seems to be the only fair system. He sat down heavily. We have tradition on this. In an emergency such as this, death lotteries have been held and have been considered legal afterwards. Are there any protests? I could feel my tongue thicken in my mouth. I could see the others stare about, hoping someone would object, wondering if this could be happening, but nobody answered, and Muller nodded reluctantly. A working force must be left. Some men are indispensable. We must have an engineer, a navigator, and a doctor. One man skilled with engine-room practice and one with deck-work must remain. And the cook goes, Grundy yelled. His eyes were intent and slitted again. Some of both groups nodded, but Muller brought his fist down on the table. This will be a legal lottery, Mr. Grundy. Dr. Napier will draw for him. And for myself, Napier said. It's obvious that ten men aren't going on to Saturn. You'll have to turn back or head for Jupiter. Jupiter, in fact, is the only sensible answer, and a ship can get along without a doctor that long when it has to. I demand my right to the draw. Muller only shrugged and laid down the rules. They were simple enough. He would cut drinking straws to various lengths, and each would draw one. The two deckhands would compare theirs, and the longer would be automatically safe. The same for a pair from the engine room. Wilcox was safe. Mr. Peters and I will also have one of us eliminated, he added quietly. In an emergency, our abilities are sufficiently alike. The remaining group would have their straws measured, and the seven shortest ones would be chosen to remove themselves into a vacant section between hulls without air within three hours, or be forcibly placed there. The remaining ten would head for Jupiter, if no miracle removed the danger in those three hours. Peters got the straws, and Muller cut them and shuffled them. There was a sick silence that let us hear the sounds of the scissors with each snip. Muller arranged them so the visible ends were even. Ladies first, he said. There was no expression on his face or in his voice. Jenny didn't giggle, but neither did she balk. She picked a straw and then shrieked faintly. It was obviously a long one. Eve reached for hers, and Wilcox yelled suddenly. Captain Muller, 
Protest! Protest! You're using all long straws for the women!" He had jumped forward and now struck down Muller's hand, proving his point. "'You're quite right, Mr. Wilcox,' Muller said woodenly. He dropped his hand toward his lap and came up with a group of the straws that had been cut, placed there somehow without our seeing it. He'd done a smooth job of it, but not smooth enough. I felt some of you would notice it, but I also felt that gentlemen would prefer to see ladies given the usual courtesies." He reshuffled the assorted straws and then paused. Mr. Tremaine, there was a luxury liner named the Lauria Lou with an assistant engineer by your name, and I believe you've shown a surprising familiarity with certain customs of space. A few days ago Jenny mentioned something that jogged my memory. Can you still perform the duties of an engineer? Wilcox had started to protest at the delay. Now shock ran through him. He stared unbelievingly from Muller to me and back, while his face blanched. I could guess what it must have felt like to see certain safety cut to a fifty percent chance, and I didn't like the way Muller was willing to forget until he wanted to take a crack at Wilcox for punishment. But— I can, I answered, and then, because I was sick inside myself for cutting under Wilcox, I managed to add— but I—I I waive my chance at immunity. Not accepted, Muller decided. Jenny, will you draw? It was pretty horrible. It was worse when the pairs compared straws. The animal feelings were out in the open then. Finally Muller, Wilcox, and two crewmen dropped out. The rest of us went up to measure our straws. It took no more than a minute. I stood staring down at the ruler, trying to stretch the tiny thing I'd drawn. I could smell the sweat rising from my body, but I knew the answer. I had three hours left. Riggs, Oliver, Nolan, Harris, Tremaine, Napier, and Grundy, Muller announced. A yell came from Grundy. He stood up with the engine man named Oliver, and there was a gun in his hand. No damned big brains kicking me off my ship, he yelled. You guys know me. Hey, Rube. Oliver was with him, and the other three of the crew sprang into the group. I saw Muller duck a shot from Grundy's gun and leap out of the room. Then I was in it, heading for Grundy. Beside me, Peters was trying to get a chair broken into pieces. I felt something hit my shoulder, and the shock knocked me downward, just as a shot whistled over my head. Gravity cut off. Someone bounced off me. I got a piece of the chair that floated by, found the end cracked and sharp, and tried to spin towards Grundy, but I couldn't see him. I heard Eve's voice yell over the other shouts. I spotted the plate coming for me, but I was still in mid-air. It came on steadily, edge on, and I felt it break against my forehead. Then I blacked out. Chapter 5 I had the granddaddy of all headaches when I came to. Doc Napier's face was over me, and Jenny and Muller were working on Bill Sanderson. There was a surprisingly small and painful lump on my head. Pietro and Napier helped me up, and I found I could stand after a minute. There were four bodies covered with sheets on the floor. Grundy, Phil Riggs, Peters, and a deckhand named Storm. Napier said, Muller gave us a whiff of gas, and not quite in time. "'Is the time up?' I asked. It was the only thing I could think of. Pietro shook his head sickly. "'Lottery is off. 
Muller says we'll have to hold another, since Storm and Peters were supposed to be safe, but not until tomorrow. Eve came in then, lugging coffee. Her eyes found me, and she managed a brief smile. I gave the others coffee, she reported to Muller. They're pretty subdued now. Mutiny. Muller helped Jenny's brother to his feet and began helping him toward the door. Mutiny! And I have to swallow that? Pietro watched him go and handed Eve back his cup. Then there's no way of knowing who was on which side. Dr. Napier, could you do something? He held out his hands that were shaking, and Napier nodded. I can use a sedative myself. Come on back with me. Eve and I wandered back to the kitchen. I was just getting my senses back, the damned stupidity of it all. And now it would have to be done over. Three of us still had to have our lives snuffed out so the others could live, and we all had to go through hell again to find out which. Eve must have been thinking the same. She sank down on the little stool, and her hand came out to find mine. For what, Paul? Whoever poisoned the plants knew it would go this far. He had to. What's to be gained? Particularly when he'd have to go through all this, too. He must have been crazy. Bullard couldn't have done it, I said slowly. Why should it be Bullard? How do we know he was insane? Maybe when he was shouting that he wouldn't tell, he was trying to make a bribe to save his own life. Maybe he's as scared as we are. Maybe he was making sense all along. If we'd only listened to him, he— She stood up and started back toward the lockers, but I caught her hand. Eve, he wouldn't have done it, the killer. If he had to go through the lottery, he knew he was safe. That's the one thing we've been overlooking. The man to suspect is the only man who could be sure he would get back. My God, we, we saw him juggle those straws to save Jenny. He knew he'd control the lottery. She frowned. But, Paul, he practically suggested the lottery. Grundy brought it up, but he was all ready for it. The frown vanished, then returned. But I still can't believe it. He's the one who wanted to go back all the time. He kept insisting on it, but he had to get back without violating his contract. I grabbed her hand and started toward the nose of the ship, justifying it to her as I went. The only man with a known motive for returning, the only one completely safe, and we didn't even think of it. She was still frowning, but I wasn't wasting time. We came up the corridor to the control room. Ahead the door was slightly open, and I could hear a mutter of Jenny's voice. Then there was the tired rumble of Muller. I'll find a way, baby. I, I don't care how close they watch. We'll make it work. Pick the straw with the crimp in the end. I can do that, even if I can't push one out further again. I tell you, nothing's going to happen to you. But, Bill— She began. I hit the door, slamming it open. Muller sat on a narrow couch with Jenny on his lap. I took off for him, not wasting a good chance when he was handicapped, but I hadn't counted on Jenny. She was up, and her head banged into my stomach before I knew she was coming. I felt the wind knocked out, but I got her out of my way, to look up into the muzzle of a gun in Muller's hands. "'You'll explain this, Mr. Tremaine,' he said coldly. "'In ten seconds I'll have an explanation, or a corpse.' "'Go ahead,' I told him. "'Shoot, damn you! You'll get away with this, too, I suppose. Mutiny or something. And down in that rotten soul of yours I suppose you'll be gloating at how you made fools of us.' The only man on board who was safe even from a lottery, and we couldn't see it. 
Jenny, I hope you'll be happy with this butcher. Very happy. He never blinked. Say that about the only safe man aboard again, he suggested. I repeated it, with details, but he didn't like my account. He turned to Eve and motioned for her to take it up. She was frowning harder, and her voice was uncertain, but she summed up our reasons quickly enough. And suddenly Muller was on his feet. Mr. Tremaine, for a damned idiot, you have a good brain. You found the key to the problem, even if you couldn't find the lock. Do you know what happens to a captain who permits a death lottery, even what I called a legal one? He doesn't captain a liner. He shoots himself after he delivers his ship, if he's wise. Come on, we'll find the one indispensable man. You stay here, Jenny. You too, Eve." Jenny whimpered and stayed. Eve followed, and he made no comment. And then it hit me. The man who had thought he was indispensable, and hence safe, the man I'd naturally known in the back of my head could be replaced, though no one else had known it until a little while ago. He must have been sick when you ran me in as a ringer, I said as we walked down toward the engine hatch. But why? I've just had a wild guess as to part of it, Muller said. Wilcox was listening to the books to Huda when we shoved the door of his room open, and he had his head back and eyes closed. He snapped to attention and reached out with one hand toward a drawer beside him. Then he dropped his arm and stood up to cut off the tape player. Mr. Wilcox, Muller said quietly, holding the gun firmly on the engineer. Mr. Wilcox, I've detected evidence of some of the Venus drugs on your two assistants for some time. It's rather hard to miss the signs in their eyes. I've also known that Mr. Grundy was an addict. I assume that they were getting it from him, naturally. And as long as they performed their duties, I couldn't be choosy on an old ship like this. But for an officer to furnish such drugs, and to smuggle them from Venus for sale to other planets, is something I cannot tolerate. It will make things much simpler if you will surrender those drugs to me. I presume you keep them in those bottles of wine you bring aboard." Wilcox shook his head slowly, settling back against the tape machine. Then he shrugged and bowed faintly. The Chianti, sir. I turned my head toward the bottles, and Eve started forward. Then I yelled as Wilcox shoved his hand down toward the tape machine. The gun came out on a spring as he touched it. Muller shot once, and the gun missed Wilcox's fingers as the engineer's hand went to his hip, where blood was flowing. He collapsed into the chair behind him, staring at the spot stupidly. I cut my teeth on tough ships, Mr. Wilcox, Muller said savagely. The man's face was white, but he nodded slowly, and a weak grin came onto his lips. Maybe you didn't exaggerate those stories at that, he conceded slowly. I take it I drew a short straw. Very short. It wasn't worth it. No profit from the piddling sale of drugs is worth it. There's a group of strings inside the number one fuel locker, Wilcox said between his teeth. The numbness was wearing off, and the shattered bones in his hip were beginning to eat at him. Paul, pull up one of the packages and bring it here, will you? I found it without much trouble, along with a whole row of others fine cords cemented to the side of the locker. The package I drew up weighed about ten pounds. Wilcox opened it and scooped out a thimbleful of greenish powder. He washed it down with wine. Fatal? Muller asked. The man nodded. 
In that dosage, after a couple of hours, but it cuts out the pain. Ah, uh, better already. I won't feel it, Captain. I was never piddling. Your ship has been the sole source of this drug to Mars since a year or so after I first shipped on her. There are about seven hundred pounds of pure stuff out there. Grundy and the others would commit public murder daily rather than lose the few ounces a year I gave them. Imagine what would happen when Pietro conscripted the Wahoo and no drugs arrived. The addicts find out no more is coming, they look for the peddlers, and they start looking for their suppliers. He shrugged. There might have been time and ways if I could have gotten the ship back to Earth or Jupiter. It might have been recommissioned into the Earth-Mars-Venus run. Even Pietro's injunction caught me before I could transship, but with another chance I might have gotten the stuff to Mars in time. Well, it was a chance I took. Satisfied? Eve stared at him with horrified eyes. Maybe I was looking the same. It was plain enough now. He'd planned to poison the plants and drive us back. Murder of Hendrix had been a blunder when he'd thought it wasn't working properly. What about Sam? I asked. Blackmail. He was too smart. He'd been sure Grundy was smuggling the stuff and raking off from him. He didn't care who killed Hendrix as much as how much Grundy would pay to keep his mouth shut. With murder around, he figured Grundy'd get rattled. The fool did. And Sam smelled bigger steaks. Grundy was bait to get him down near here. I killed him. And Lomax? I don't know. Maybe he was bluffing, but he kept going from room to room with a pocketful of chemicals, making some kind of tests. I couldn't take a chance on his being able to spot chromosome, so I had Grundy give him my keys and tell him to go ahead, then jump him. And after that, when he wasn't quite killed, they'd been forced to finish the job. Wilcox shrugged again. I guess it got out of hand. I'll make a tape of the whole story for you, Captain, but I'd appreciate it if you'd get Napier down here. This is getting pretty messy. He's on his way, Eve said. We hadn't seen her call, but the doctor arrived almost immediately afterwards. He sniffed the drug and questioned us about the dose Wilcox had taken. Then he nodded slowly. About two hours, I'd say. No chance at all to save him. The stuff is absorbed almost at once and begins changing to something else in the blood. I'll be responsible if you want. Muller shrugged. I suppose so. I'd rather deliver him in irons to a jury, but, well, we still have a lottery to hold. It jerked us back to reality sharply. Somehow I'd been fighting off the facts, figuring that finding the cause would end the results. But even with Wilcox out of the picture, there were twelve of us left, and air for only ten. Wilcox laughed abruptly. A favor for a favor. I can give you a better answer than a lottery. Popcorn! Bullard! Eve slapped her head with her palm. Captain, give me the master key! She snatched it out of his hand and was gone at a run. Wilcox looked disappointed and then grinned. Popcorn and beans. I overlooked them myself. We're a bunch of city hicks. But when Bullard got his fears in his sleep, he remembered the answer, and got it so messed up with his dream and his new place as a hero that my complaint tipped the balance. Grundy put the fear of God into him then, and you didn't get it. Captain, you don't dehydrate beans and popcorn. They come that way naturally. You don't can them either, if you're saving weight. They're seeds. Put them in tanks, and they grow. 
He leaned back, trying to laugh at us as Napier finished dressing his wound. Bullard knows where the lockers are, and corn grows pretty fast. It'll carry you through. Do I get that favor? It's simple enough. Just to have Beethoven's Ninth on the machine, and for the whole damned lot of you to get out of my cabin and let me die in my own way. Muller shrugged, but Napier found the tape and put it on. I wanted to see the louse punished for every second of worry, for Lomax, for Hendrix, even for Grundy. But there wasn't much use in vengeance at this point. You're to get all this, Paul, Wilcox said as we got ready to leave. Captain Muller, everything here goes to Tremaine. I'll make a tape on that, too, but I want it to go to a man who can appreciate Homan's conducting. Muller closed the door. I guess it's yours, he admitted. Now that you're head engineer here, Mr. Tremaine, the cabin is automatically yours. Take over and get that junk in the fuel locker cleaned out, except enough to keep your helpers going. They'll need it, and we'll need their work. I'll clean out his stuff at the same time, I said. I don't want any part of it. He smiled then, just as Eve came down with Bullard and Pietro. The fat cook was sobered, but already beginning to fill with his own importance. I caught snatches as they began to discuss Bullard's knowledge of growing things. It was enough to know that we'd all live, though it might be tough for a while. Then Muller gestured upwards. You've got a reduced staff, Dr. Pietro. Do you intend to go on to Saturn? We'll go on, Pietro decided, and Muller nodded. They turned and headed upwards. I stood staring at my engines. One of them was a touch out of phase, and I went over and corrected it. They'd be mine for over two years, and after that I'd be back on the lists. Eve came over beside me and studied them with me. Finally she sighed softly. I guess I can see why you feel that way about them, Paul, she said. And I'll be coming down to look at them. But right now Bullard's too busy to cook, and everyone's going to be hungry when they find we're saved. I chuckled and felt the relief wash over me finally. I dropped my hand from the control and caught hers. A nice, friendly hand. But at the entrance I stopped and looked back toward the cabin where Wilcox lay. I could just make out the second movement of the ninth beginning. I never could stand the cheap blatancy of Homan's conducting. End of Part 2 of Let Em Breathe Space End of Let Em Breathe Space by Lester Del Rey